Hello, beautiful people, and welcome into the Story of Podcasts. My name is Bobby Levine, and as always, Jeff Webb. Bobby, good evening. Uh, it's been a uh, it's been a busy few weeks, but we're back here on a Thursday again. Thursday Friday shifts have been a thing, but we took a week off, and now we're back. Yes, and our special guest tonight for the second podcast in the row coming from las vegas perry marie welcome to the podcast hello how are you guys good thank you great so for the people listening and watching out there uh the last podcast we had was pretty loose and light uh this podcast we're gonna get a little deeper um perry is a human sex trafficking survivor and she is going to dive into her life. And uh, we do appreciate you coming on. And we, we think that you need to share the story and have a platform to talk because unfortunately this happens way more often than people think. And unfortunately, most of those people never get out and luckily you have. So um, thank you for joining us tonight and uh, we're excited to have you. So if you could dive into who you are, where you're from, and um, how your family was growing up. Okay. Well, my name is Perry, and my birthday is actually this week. So, yeah. Um... <laughs> hey, happy birthday. Happy birthday. Yeah, thank you, guys. I'm going to be a year older, and I, I really appreciate you guys having me on here. I think it's interesting that um, you said for the second week in a row, two people have come from Vegas. And I'm originally born and raised in Vegas. And Vegas is, it's an interesting place. Um, it's not like most cities because as you, as you guys know, um, people call Vegas Sin City. So you either end up in one or two things. And I'm not saying that it's exclusive to this, but it's interesting that you had an illusionist on. A lot of people end up in entertainment, but a lot of people also end up in human trafficking or you know, just some form of illegal activity. This city was actually founded by the mob. So there's a lot of stuff that goes into place in Las Vegas. So growing up out here, I was just exposed to a lot of stuff. Um, my family in particular was it was it was ratchet. It was not the best family, but there was just a lot of brokenness, a lot of mental health issues that people didn't address. And so it was like like passed down from generation to generation. And so growing up, I felt like I got the brunt of like the worst of the worst. Like um, my mom and dad, they were both drug addicts. Um, my father was actually a pimp. My mother, um, she's alive, but she's still into prostitution. So it was almost like I was set up to be a certain way. Like my family, based on my family history, if I would have continued in that path, it wouldn't have been strange because people before me were involved in illegal activities or drugs or from that lifestyle. So um, growing up, I grew up in a abusive home. My grand, my grandmother, um, I was raised by my grandparents, but my grandfather, he worked a lot. So he wasn't there um, most of the time. And so it's mainly my grandmother and she was extremely abusive. She was an alcoholic. Um, I now looking back, I'm like, I think she was a narcissist too. Like, <laughs> I don't know if you guys know about that, but I've been hearing a lot of talk about like narcissism and it's really nefarious in a sense of how these people can literally destroy the lives of another. So I grew up 
with the um, narcissistic alcoholic grandmother. And so at a young age, like my self-esteem was just so low because she would tell me every day, like, I hate you. You're ugly. You're not going to be anything. You're going to be a hoe just like your mom. So I grew up. Yeah, <laughs> I see your face, Jeff. Yeah. So I grew up with this in circulation, constantly being told, not being told that I'm going to grow up to be anything great. Um, despite that, I was actually a, a gifted student, like in um, elementary school, I was in gifted and talented education. I got straight A's. School was my escape. So I really put my all into school. But there was a time in my life where it kind of, I kind of came to a crossroad because I was performing well in school, but nobody in my family seemed to appreciate it. And so right around my adolescence, um, I just, I rebelled. I was like, you guys don't care. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to make my own friends and get out of this house. So my escape was making friends. And the friends that I made were parents who, um, I had friends who parents really didn't care about them. So I started hanging out with girls who were sleeping around with all the boys in the neighborhood, getting into trouble. And I stuck around that because it was really my escape from home. So it went from school being an escape to now my friends are an escape and it just wasn't healthy. So yeah, you guys want me to continue? Yeah, so I, uh, at home life, um, you know, with your grandparents, uh, if your grandfather wasn't really around that much and your grandmother was uh, kind of so much of a negative influence, um, did you end up spending uh, a majority of your uh, childhood to adolescent years with them, or did you end up getting out of that house? Uh, yeah, so I grew up in that house. Uh, my grandfather, I mean, he went through a lot of the same thing. My grandmother was just, she was wicked. And it was kind of like a heaven hell type of thing because my grandfather, he was, you know, devout Christian. He took me to church every Sunday. But my grandmother, here she is, like, we we would come home and she's like flaming drunk. And so there was this odd parallel in my life between, you know, my grandfather trying to do the right thing by me. My grandfather, he wasn't abusive. Um, he really tried to do the right thing by me. But my grandmother, because he was, I think he worked like, he was just gone a lot. Like he worked five days a week, but for most of the day, he worked like a swing shift. So pretty much, you know, he would go, get home by the time I was going to bed. And then I would see him in the morning. And then after I got out of school, it was just me with my grandmother. And she was really a, a driving force in the family. Like she was so dominating. And then the alcoholism was just out of control. There was no controlling her. There was no getting her help. Really, my grandmother, she passed away, I think, um, in 2008. So what, that's like what, 14 years ago now, like 13 years ago. But um, she didn't change until her deathbed. She ended up with lung cancer from smoking. You know, she had bad health from drinking and smoking her whole life. So, but yeah, she was the driving force. And um, I didn't actually move out of the home until I was uh, 18 years old, I think 18, turning 19. But during my teenage years, I was just out running the streets, making friends, um, just anywhere I could be to get out of the house. And so um, I, I used to party a lot. I would stay out at people's houses. I would meet people randomly. Like I would meet one person. I would know them for like a second and then go stay with these people for days. Anything I could to not stay in that house. So in my teenage years, you know, I got introduced to human trafficking, um, I think around age 14. And I started drinking, partying, smoking like around 13. So I was just on a bad path in my teenage years. Mm -hmm. 
Now you describe you were introduced to human trafficking at 14. How, how this, how, how does that happen? Uh, okay. So one of the friends that I had, it was a girl that I've known since elementary school. So we, in essence, grew up with each other and, um, she started, you know, she was very promiscuous. Um, during my teenagers, I wasn't really promiscuous like that, but she was. And so she would meet different guys. Like every time I would go over her house, she had a dude that she was bringing over that she was sleeping with. And so um, one day she got connected to some guy and she started telling me like, yeah, I'm going to go hang out. I think his name was Captain. It's crazy because I didn't, I haven't thought about his name in all these years, but the guy's name was Captain. And um, she's like, oh, I'm going to go hang out with Captain. He's taking me shopping. He's going to spoil me. He's going to do all these things. And so pretty much I was like, I wasn't a runaway way because I would go home every so often but I mean I'm in a place where I'm just living in the same outfit I would probably bring like a bag of clothes I didn't have much and so one day she said hey um captain wants to meet you too and he'll take you shopping I was like oh okay like you know I can get some new clothes like um in my childhood it was weird and I felt like that was really um an entry point for me it was very it was a weak point because in my childhood my mom she would I would literally see her maybe like once or twice maybe three times a year she would come every few months but one thing my mother would do she I mean mind you this is a drug addict my mom was a full-blown drug addict living on the streets and when she would come every single time she would come she would steal my clothes she was that tiny that she could fit into my my top my I was a child, she was fitting in children's clothes. And so my mom, she would come and steal. And I remember like, I would cry and cry and like, she would take my favorite outfit. So I was like, it hurt me. And so for a guy to come in and say, hey, I'm gonna buy you some clothes. Now circling back to my childhood, it was an entry point. It was a weak point that was like, ooh, you know, this person is gonna give in an area where I was taken from. And so uh, I went out with her and I didn't know what to expect. So uh, we go out, this guy pulls up and like, a, like a, I think it's, a, it's like a GMC Buick, those big SUVs. And that's kind of like out here in Vegas, there are certain cars that I hate to say it, but like certain pimps, they, they're known for driving a certain type of car, having a certain type of look. So it was a typical, typical I call it a pimp mobile. You know, in the seventies, you had the Cadillacs, you know, so nowadays it's the bigger like Buicks, GMC type of just very large, usually black, all black tenant type of car. So he comes and he picks us up and, um, you know, the whole time I'm like waiting, like, when is he going to take us shopping? And so we go to um, in Las Vegas, west of the Strip. So everybody knows the Strip, but there's this street called Tropicana and it's known as the blade. So on this street, this is where you find a lot of street walkers, a lot of girls who walk the street. They, I mean, all hours of the day, um, day and night, these girls walk up and down. And on that particular street, there's a lot of rest stops, a lot of um, areas where truck drivers go to, you know, take a break from traveling from city to city. So a lot of these um, they call them Johns. I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but a John is a, or a trick is a guy who will pay for a girl um, for sex. And so they go and they park on these streets and um, these girls walk up and down day and night and they meet these guys and they, you know, the guys pay for them. So it's very common. I mean, I can drive down that street this day and I can spot these girls out like it's nothing. They're usually um, not dressed appropriately, especially for the season. You'll find, um, you know, even in a winter season, these girls will walk around in shorts and like, like 
you know, tiny tank tops in it. It's just like, it's, it's really sad. You know, a lot of these girls, you know, you can tell that they're hurt or, you know, and particularly on that street, usually the girls, they have a pimp. Those girls in the street are not there by their own free will. And so this guy named Captain, he drops us off on that street. And, you know, me up until that point, I had no idea what it was about. I didn't even know why he was dropping us off there, but my friend, she knew what he was doing. And so we're just walking up and down the street. She's like, oh, we got to go meet someone. Let's go hang out in this hotel. So we go and hang out in the hotel and we meet a guy. So we're in the front lobby and a guy calls her over and she's like, come on. So we go up to this guy's room and still at that point, I had no idea what we were even doing. And so I go up to the room and she's like, wait right here, I'll take care of it. And I say, okay. So pretty much she gives him a blowjob. I think it was, it wasn't much that he paid her, but that was my experience in human trafficking. And I didn't see her do it. She went in the bathroom and did it, but it was an experience because I was like, what is going on? Like, why are we here? What is she doing in the bathroom? What are you taking care of? There was so many unanswered questions. I had no idea. And after that, I just, I pretty much stopped hanging out with that friend. Cause I was like, this was weird. But you know, a while later I figured it out. I was like, Oh, wait a minute. This was, you know, he took us out. He was trying to get her and, you know, get me. So a lot of times what pimps will do is they'll use a girl to recruit her friends or somebody else. And a lot of times there's this term called it's a bottom B. Um, I don't know if you guys are censored, but pretty much B-I-T-C-H, which is a girl who um, is the recruiter, the wrangler, the teacher. She will bring in other girls um, for the pimp, um, pretty much grooms the girls and uh, leads them to the pimp. And so that's what my friend became. And that's what she was trying to do to me, trying to recruit me so I could, you know, work for this guy too. But after that, I, I just stopped hanging out with her. I was like, this was weird. But my bad behavior didn't end. Like I got heavy into drugs. I started, you know, skipping out in school, started failing a lot of classes. Um, I met a guy, which he eventually became my, well, now ex-husband, but he got me involved in so many drugs. And then there was a point where I was like, you know what? I don't even think I want this life. So my life has pretty much been marked by like, you know, periods of like, you know, intense struggle, making bad decisions, and then coming out. And it's, it's been a pattern. But right now where I'm at in my life, I'm like, mm, I'm not going back. I've learned the hard way, um, living a certain way. And, you know, now um, I'll circle back to, you know, my upbringing, but I've gone through so much therapy and healing and just a lot of personal work that my mindset is not there. A lot of, a lot of, um, what really kept me in that lifestyle making bad decisions was the trauma that I went through. My childhood upbringing, those lies, those things that my grandma told me would echo in my head. And a lot of times like, you know, going into the time where I was like in full, like human trafficking full blown, a lot of times the words that would echo through my head is what my grandmother would tell me. Like, you're ugly, you know, nobody wants you. You're gonna be a hoe and I'm like, well, here I am being a hoe. My grandma said I was going to do it. So might as well. She already said it. So I'm just going to do it. So it was healing that, that um, false narrative, those, that broken thinking. And now it's like a lot of times girls don't come out of that lifestyle successfully because what people would do is, you know, um, it's like that saying, you can take the whatever out of this, but uh, like, 
like you can take the girl out of the hood, but you can't take the hood out of the girl. A lot of times what people do is they'll take a girl, a human trafficking, but they don't work on the inside to take it out of her. And so they'll give them a home or a place to stay, but really it's, they have to be transformed from the inside out. Only 1% of girls who come out of human trafficking are guys, you know, cause I knew guys who were in human trafficking too. Um, only 1% actually successfully stay out because it's an inside job. You can take someone and put them in a new environment, but with that broken thinking, like if you are codependent or you're looking for a savior, you're going to end up back in that same situation, looking for someone to take, like rescue you. And what you're going to find is people are vultures. There's going to be someone eventually that will come along and take advantage of your vulnerabilities. So I had to heal those vulnerabilities and wanting to run away and be rescued. And now realizing like, you know, I'm strong now. I am my own hero. Um, I have a lot of worth. I have a lot of value. I am worth something. Even telling myself like, you're beautiful. You're not ugly. Um, you're not a hoe like your mom. You don't have to live like your mom. And so it was changing that narrative to be where I'm at today. Wow. When uh, you said you started, you stopped hanging out with uh, that friend of yours, but you kind of stayed in that circle um you know like what other kind of relationships did you have with people did people like try to recruit you again or like did you like kind of get yourself into it how, how did that uh how did like that progress after that initial moment okay so you know i had an ex-husband he was if in hindsight he was toxic to begin with i shouldn't even have um even of wasting my time on this person really. But, you know, again, circling back to my childhood, being raised in a church and this toxic environment, um, I ended up marrying him because I was like, oh no, I'm living in sin, no sex before marriage. So if I wanna do it, I have to marry this person. Shouldn't have married him. But um, we ended up uh, pretty much becoming a part of this cult. And I was, because I was raised by a narcissist, the person, that was the leader of this cult was a narcissist too. So I went through a really like interesting experience where um, it was a church, but I'm not afraid to say it was a cult, but I thought I was like, oh, I'm gonna get my life together. I'm gonna join this church and you know live right. But really it was a cult. And um, my ex-husband, he really cracked under the pressure. We were put under so much scrutiny, so much pressure, um, pretty much being told to drink the Kool-Aid and just mistreated, taken advantage of. And so my ex-husband, he cracked and he went back to drugs. He was like, you know what? Drugs is way better than being in this cult. And so he ended up leaving me. He was cheating on me, all this other stuff. And so I got to the point where after my husband ended up leaving me, I was so hurt. And instead of, you know, normal people, if your husband leaves, like if you're going through a tough time, people will rally around you for support. These people like shamed me. They made me, um, they blamed me. They humiliated me. I went through like a humiliation process because my husband made mistakes. And so I was just at that point, I remember just being so broken, so hurt. And I was like, I need to get out of here. So I ended up leaving that situation too. And I went back to my high school friends that I knew. And, you know, now these we're in our early 20s. And so now these girls have grown up and now they're going to bars, they're going to clubs, hooking up with dudes. And so um, I was just like, well, 
I'm going to hang out with these people. And I started doing the same things too. Now I eventually got to the point where I had a stable job, but I got let go from the job. And so I remember like me and my friends, we would sit around and look on plenty of fish, um, okay, Cupid, things like that. And um, one day, like I was looking and I found a guy that said he was going to pay. And I was like, pay? No, actually, no, it didn't happen like that. But I eventually started looking at these guys for that reason. But I found a guy that I ended up meeting with and I went to his hotel room and he paid me afterwards. And I was like, wait a minute, people will pay money for this. So I started looking for it and I was looking for like legit work in between, but that was um, sustaining me for a time. And so one day I was looking online, just like Craigslist. This is when Backpage was still around. And I found this um, ad for a model and um, I answered the gig. I went to go meet this guy and it wasn't a modeling agency. It was actually a pimp. And he was just like, hey, this is how you can make money. I'm going to show you. I'm going to teach you the ropes. And I was already like I had a foot in that lifestyle. And so when he came and said, hey, I can teach you how to do it better. I was just like, well, I'm already here. I'm desperate. I need money. I got to continue to pay my bills, my rent. Um, so it lured me into that lifestyle, but it was like a tug of war because deep down, I didn't want to do it, but I felt like I had no other choice. I was really down on my luck during that time. So for just, uh, just a claimer here, you could say whatever you want in this podcast. If you want to cuss, you can cuss. If you want to, <laughs> if you, if you want to tell the story, how it happened, go right ahead. Like this is the people are here to listen to like the truth of your story. So, um, now you did on the TikTok that I did see, um, you said you were molested by a family member. Yeah. So growing up um, in my grandfather, grandparents' home, um, well, okay. So I was raised by my grandparents, but growing up, uh, my grandparents had kids. So my aunts and uncles, like some of them, they weren't, when I moved in at a young age, some of them weren't grown yet. They were still growing up. And my uncle, who was in high school during the time when I moved in with my grandparents, um, he started to he started molesting me. And I didn't know. I remember I was like four or five years old. And this would happen before he would go to school in the morning. So he before he would get on the school bus, um, he would pretty much I'm like four or five. Like, uh, yeah. So I was four and he was 14. He's 10 years older than me in high school. And when I was sleeping, I didn't have my own room in the house yet because they were still living there. I used to sleep on the couch. And so he would come in and molest me in the morning when I was sleeping. And I remember one day waking up and like my pants were pulled down. He had me bent over and I was like, what the heck is going on? But I knew like something in me knew he had been doing that for a while. And um, some, there were times where my grandparents would leave the home and um, they would put him in charge. So he will take care of me while my grandparents went and ran errands. And like at a young age, he used to show me like the most obscene things. I remember being like, you know, five, six years old watching this. I don't know if you ever heard of this movie series called Faces of Death, but it's, it's traumatizing. <laughs> it's horrible. It's, it's this um, video. And I remember it used to be on VHS and it's this like they had like all these series of it, but it's pretty much real footage of people being killed in the most grotesque ways, um, animal mauling, all sorts of weird stuff. So, I mean, OK, so on top of being having a super narcissistic grandmother, I'm being traumatized by watching death, people dying at a young age. 
And then he would put on porn too. So I'm like five or six years old watching porn with him. And he used to sit me on his lap and like start touching me. And I remember like when he would stay home, I started running away. Like I would, you know, I started realizing, I think I was probably like six or seven when I finally figured, I was like, wait a minute, this isn't right. He's not touching me right. Everything about this feels wrong. Why am I watching these movies? Um, and so when he would watch me, I would just hide. I would go and hide um, in the house somewhere. I remember I used to like um, just lay under the bed or I would lock myself in a bathroom until my grandparents came back home. And I was probably around 12 years old when I finally spoke up. So I told one of my aunts and I said, hey, you know, my uncle's been doing this and she believed me. But when we told my grandmother, my grandmother, she freaked out and she's like, you're a liar. He would never do that. You're making it up. And so um, I wasn't believed. It was like, I pretty much internalized that. You know, a lot of times when girls are molested or guys are molested, they don't see the person as wrong. They don't see like, you know, this person's wrong for what they did to me people tend to internalize and they say, I'm wrong. I messed up. Something must be messed up with me for this person to do this. I'm a, a failure. And a lot of that uh, fueled me being in sex trafficking, because what happens is it just tears down your self-worth and you feel like everybody can just have access to you. This person already took advantage of me. So who cares if other people take advantage of me? And so it's a mindset um, that's developed through that type of abuse that really keeps a person in, in that situation. Uh, when your, you know, your, your life progressed uh, through uh, your introduction and sex trafficking and uh, uh, going into this, you know, religious cult, um, you mentioned uh, getting into substances, drugs, uh, things like that. Was that brought on by um, like people like your ex-husband or was that uh, more of a like people around you thing? How did that end up? Well, my ex-husband, he was the first person to introduce me to a number of drugs. I started smoking cigarettes, drinking alcohol, doing methamphetamines, cocaine, heroin, uh, all ecstasy, all these different drugs he introduced me to. But I did it because I found that through drugs, I had an escape. Um, I wasn't in therapy. I, I didn't have a healthy outlet. I didn't have healthy um, activities that I did. So to do a drug pretty much numbed the pain that I was experiencing. And I didn't even really know I had pain. I just knew that my life, something in my life, I didn't want to feel. So drugs, um, it was a way to escape uh, the pain that I was feeling. And so um, he introduced me to that when we were in that cult. Um, I stopped doing drugs during that time, but after I left, I went right back to it. I wasn't like, I guess like really changed. Like there was a part of me that wasn't really like transformed from the inside out to not want those things. So after I left, I was hurting so much. I was like, well, I might as well go smoke a blunt. Like I might as well do all these things. Like I can forget about this drama and all these other problems I have. So it was easy. And so after um, I left that church and my ex-husband was gone. Um, I It was easy to integrate back into, a, I guess, a negative lifestyle because, you know, I just, I was just in a really bad place. I really was. Now, after the divorce, 
you get into prostitution. What was there a certain situation that you went through where you decided I need to get out of this right now? Or was there a scary situation that triggered something? Well, okay. So once I met this pimp, I get connected to this guy from answering this modeling ad and I started going out he started showing me the ropes. This is how you pick up a John in this situation, go here. This is what you say. This is how you proposition him. Up until that point, I was really getting like just low bucks. I was like a hundred dollars or something to sleep with some guy. So this guy is like, no, you asked him for 500 and then you charged them, you know, another hundred per hour after that. So it went from, you know, a hundred dollars here and there to now I'm making like 500,000, all these thousands per night. And he was taking half of it. And I remember I had a good friend and we used to go out to the bars and the clubs and just hook up with people. And I was telling her, I was like, hey, I met this guy, but he's taking half of my money and doing this. And she was like, you don't need this dude. She's like, let's just go out, uh, me and you, you show me what to do. And we'll, we're, you don't talk to him anymore. And we'll start making our own money. So we did that for a while. And, but deep down, I was like, I don't want to be in this lifestyle. I really felt like I was looking for a way out. So I would meet these Johns and um, in most instances, these Johns, like depending, cause I would go to certain casinos and hotels. Like I knew there are certain hotels in Las Vegas where you can catch a higher, I guess, um, a higher salary trick or John um, versus certain casinos and hotels. So I would hang out in a higher end. So I guess you can say I became more of a high class escort because I was, you know, making a lot of money from these guys. And so, um, I remember I just, I didn't want to do it. So when I would see these guys, I was hoping that somebody would say, Hey, come and work for me. I was really hoping for like a pretty woman type of situation. Like you, you guys know that movie with, uh, what's your name? It's my, it's my parents' favorite movie. It was the first yeah. date. Yeah. yeah. So I was hoping was for something like that. Yeah. Hmm. So, yeah. So I was really like, I'm like, hopefully one day I just meet the guy who's going to like pull me in and rescue me. So one night I go out and I'm um, hanging out with this group of guys and I find out that a documentary is being filmed of these millionaires. And I was like, I hit the jackpot right here. So I'm, I'm going to meet somebody in this group of guys. And so I meet this group of guys. I'm hanging out with them the whole night. Um, I'm talking to them and I'm kind of like seeing like if any person's interested. And by the end of the night, they were like, oh, no, we're just going to go back. No, we're not interested. But one of the guys was like, hey, like, I really want you to hang out with me and let's get to know each other. So I was like, oh, OK, like, finally, I've been with you guys, wasted my whole night, you know, trying to pick up on you guys. And so one, he was like, OK, let's go back. But then I, I got this really bad feeling. I was like, oh, something is telling me that I shouldn't go back with this guy. But I did it anyway, because I was like, you know what, I'm going to go make my money. You know, if I'm going to do it, I might as well just make money. I've been out all night and I didn't make anything. And so I go back with this guy. I end up talking to him. He's like, oh, I'm actually I live out here in Las Vegas. And, you know, I have this million dollar business and all this other stuff. And I was like, oh, this is the guy who can rescue me from this lifestyle. I'm out of here. And he was like, yeah, I want to bring you into my business and I can teach you some stuff. So here it is, like the ticket that I really was hoping for. I was like, I finally got my moment. This is my ticket out. And so I meet this guy and he introduces me to like an MLM. And at the time, I didn't know what, the, what an MLM was, but, you know, the pyramid scheme. So here I am thinking like, oh, I'm in a business now. I'm a businesswoman. And really, it wasn't that. And so I stopped going out escorting because I thought I was going to make all this money from the pyramid scheme. 
And I got to a point where I wasn't making any money. And I went and told him, I said, hey, this is not working. He's like, oh, you shouldn't, are you still working? Are you still doing what you were doing before? And I said, no. He was like, well, what were you doing before? And I said, um, I was escorting. And he was like, oh, I knew that. And he was like, actually, that's very sexy. And you should still do it. And he was like, actually, I can introduce you to some people who are connected and I can show you where to go. So by that point, I met this guy and we had developed a romantic relationship. And there's this term called a Romeo. So there's kind of like there's different types of pimps. Um, different types of guys like there are the guys the strip club guys you know <laughs> to be honest I really feel like it's just like the brothels it's like legalized pimping pretty much they're getting a cut from these girls who are doing sex work and then you have gorilla pimps the guy that I was with before um, you know the first two those were gorilla pimps where you know they walk the streets with the girls they're hawkeyeing you the whole night um, you better give them your money right when you see them. And then there's a boyfriend pimp, a Romeo, where they develop a romantic relationship with the girl with the intention of, I'm going to siphon this money out of this girl. So it doesn't start like all like, you know, hand me the money right now. It's a slow game. It's developing a relationship. It's a lot of manipulation. And so, you know, now I'm wanting to get out of this lifestyle and this guy now is manipulating me and saying oh it's so sexy when you do that you turn me on um you know if you really want to be with me you would do this and so i against my better judgment go okay well you know i should stay in this lifestyle and he likes it and it's making him happy and so i stayed in but the longer i stayed in that lifestyle so it turned in from you know me taking you know making money he was showing me where to go telling me you know go to this strip club go to this place go to this hotel and all the time he always had a bill that needed to be paid he was like oh i i i, I don't know what to do so this millionaire guy that was hanging out with these millionaires who had all this money suddenly can't pay his bills and so here I am paying his bills. And as the relationship progressed, things just got abusive. He was emotionally abusive. He was manipulative, um, controlling. He controlled when I went to bed, what I wore, um, just every aspect of my life, who I could and couldn't hang out with. He was controlling it. And I remember I got pregnant. And at first, I didn't want to keep the kids. So I was like, I don't know if I want to have kids because it's going to mess up everything. I don't want to. I was so like into my looks. I was going to mess up my body. Like I want to stretch out my stomach. And so um, I, he took me to an abortion clinic one day and I was like, we got to get an abortion. And he was in agreement. And so I go in to do it and they do an ultrasound. They're like, oh, we have to do it. I was like, I know there's kids in here. I feel them. I took like 10 pregnancy tests. I don't want them. They're like, oh, but we have to do this um, ultrasound, this procedure. And I said, okay. So they do this ultrasound and they go, hey, looks like you have twins in here. And so the interesting thing out of all the bad stuff my grandmother told me, twins run in my family. And she will always say, Perry, twins run in a family. You're going to have the twins. And I was just like, you know, so it was this belief, which she told me I believed. I believed I was a whole. I believed I was stupid. I believed I was ugly. But I also believed I was going to have twins. So I have this ultrasound. I was like, oh, my goodness, it's what my grandma said. I was like, I can't do this abortion. So I, you know, I carry my kids to term. I end up giving birth. Um, but the relationship was still bad. I was still as I was pregnant, I was still going out and working. 
Um, I was still for a while, I was working in a strip club too. So not only was I escorting, I was doing webcam. I was working in a strip club. Anyway, I, you can make money. I was doing it. And so um, it just got to the point. I was like, this relationship is so toxic. This guy is always picking on me. He was calling the police on me multiple times per week. And I was just like, I cannot live like this anymore. And so um, I just, I said, you know what? I got to get out of here. But really it was having my kids that really forced me to say, I can't stay in this lifestyle because there's so much risk involved in it. Every time I went out to escort, I knew that there was some risk. Um, there was vice. They would send vice undercover police who would go and pretend to be Johns to bust these girls. And I was in a place where I was like, I can't risk being arrested and being apart from my kids. There were infants. I was breastfeeding them. And I was just like, I can't, I cannot risk this anymore. How do I get out of this lifestyle? And so I figured at the time I said, I got to get out of this relationship. And so eventually I left the guy, but um, I, I stayed in the strip club for a little bit. I tried to work as a stripper because I felt like, oh, this was safe. It was, you know, a safe way to still go out and make money without actually escorting. So really it was my kids. Uh, and raising your kids uh, through this, I mean, you did everything to make sure that they, you know, they were well fed and they could, you know, uh, they could live a comfortable life. Did they have access to like school when they were very young? Well, OK, so here's the thing. It's raising my kids has not been easy. <laughs> it's been extremely hard. <laughs> um the person, the Romeo pimp guy, he is the father of the children. And it's interesting because I'm, I had people ask me, they're like, well, how do you know he's the dad? I'm like, I got a paternity test. Like we, what you want me to go on Mari? Like he, he's the father. Mm -hmm. So I know for sure that he's the dad, but he's, he made it so hard for me to raise my kids. Um, he took me to court. All of a sudden it went from I'm a millionaire to I'm broke and I have no money to, oh, I'm going to take you to court and spend a hundred thousand dollars fighting you. So it's, it's been really hard. And I actually went through a lot of legal abuse, um, with him, with all that he did to really set me back. Cause when I left, um, I ended up staying in a shelter. Like I was like, I got to get out of here. I don't care how I get out of here. And so I went and lived in a shelter for a while, but, um, he, he didn't take lightly because I was like his cash cow. I was the one bringing in money to the house. So of course he was going to fight me tooth and nail. And he kind of saw the kids as an opportunity as, you know, as long as I somehow get the kids, then I'm going to have a cord or a connection to her to keep her in my life. And really it's been long-term um, post-domestic abuse that I've had to go through. Uh, the kids, my kids right now, they're six years old. So they're in kindergarten. Even right now, it's it's a struggle because um, we share custody and he doesn't really care for the kids. He's not taking them to school. He's not doing the right thing. So really, I'm having to counter, he's counter parenting me. All the good, all the growth that I've done, everything that I've done to really set them up for success so they don't repeat the same mistakes with like that I had, or I'm not um trying to parent in such a way that i'm not passing down 
trauma or like parenting my kids the way I was parented, he really counters everything that I try to do. So to be honest, it hasn't been an easy road. It really hasn't. Um, And the hard part about it too is that, you know, I've gone to law enforcement, I've gone to, you know, FBI, police, advocates, lawyers, and nobody could really help me. And I told him, I said, hey, this guy trafficked me. And now you guys want to give this guy who's a trafficker custody of a child. And it's really, it's, I've experienced injustice in the justice system here. Um, It was really hard to prove that he was trafficking me. I remember um, he started turning off my phone and he had so much control. It was really hard to prove. You have to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that this person is, you know, pandering you, which he was. And so um, I really, I went through a lot of legal system betrayal coming out and saying, hey, this is my story. This is what I went through. Somebody helped me. It was just a lot of betrayal because I wasn't helped. And, you know, a lot of times too, the way it's interesting because the way the legal system is out here, you know, a lot of girls once, only one time. So I was in human trafficking for about a total of, I would say it was from 2012 to 2016. So about four years. Um, I was arrested one time and I realized like the girls are punished so severely. They don't go after the Johns who are buying this, you know, it's like they don't cut off the supply. You know, obviously there is a supply and there's a demand. So they don't go after the people who are demanding it. The girls get the brunt of it. And it's, you know, a lot of girls, they stay silent to protect their pimps. But I realized there there was a lot of, um, well, you were in this lifestyle. Oh, you chose this. And they kind of placed the blame on the person. And really, there's so much manipulation and control. Really, no girl at five years old says, I want to be a prostitute when I grow up. No girl is thinking that as a child. But for girls to grow up and become that and want to get out of it, it's almost like they're the blame is placed on them. Like, oh, well, you you let him do that. It's like, no, you don't even realize. Like when I say manipulation, some people are so deeply manipulative and controlling. And as women, like especially women in particular, we're vulnerable. You know, if a guy is exerting forceful control, he's abusive, he's manipulating you. A lot of times, like it's interesting to see because they call it like talking a game. A lot of pimps are able to speak in such a way that, you know, and they talk really fast. It's like slick talking, the way they talk and how to get into a girl's head. It's like they make your head spin that you don't even realize, like, you know, you want to leave. And there were so many times where I was like, I'm done. I want to leave. And then after slick talking, I was just almost like, oh, well, I was no, I don't really want to leave. No, I'm sorry. No, it's my fault. It's my fault that you're abusing me. I did something that made you so mad that you wanted to hit me. It's manipulation. And so to be manipulated on that level and, you know, to come out of it and people say, oh, well, you chose that. No, I was manipulated. A lot of girls are. And, you know, really there's a term called Stockholm syndrome where girls don't really come out of it because they end up bonding with the abuser. They don't see life beyond the abuse. They can't picture life. You know, they get so comfortable with the abuse. And so they just keep going back. It's almost like, um, I don't know if you guys ever heard of like that. There's this uh, like little story that says uh, like when people are training an elephant for a circus at a young age, they put the elephant on a stake. 
And um, when an elephant is small, it can't overpower or pull itself out of stake. And so it develops this mindset, oh, I can't pull myself out. And so when an elephant grows up, it doesn't try anymore because it believes that it can't do it. This is what happens to the girls. You know, you try for so long, you get manipulating, gaslighting to thinking the abuse is your fault. You deserve this. And then you just get to the point where you're like, well, why try? Why try anymore? This is just life. Um, so I have two questions. One is going to go a part of one of our audience members questions. Um, during your time prostituting, how many pimps did you have? Um, let's see. Okay. So I probably had about one, two, three, four, four. So even after I left my ex and, um, I was working in a strip club, there was a guy who came in and again, I was still in this vulnerable place and he tried to wrangle me in again. And it was very slow. It was very insidious, but I had about four, um, different traffickers. And the question from our audience member is, um, did your pimps allow you to leave so easily? No, no. Well, okay. So when I first, the first pimp that I was, you know, really, I guess, came under and submitted to, um, when you leave a pimp, there's a term called renegade. Like I know it's a popular song. Everybody's like renegade, renegade. Th that song is probably a prostitute's worst nightmare. No prostitute is out here renegade, renegade, because really there's a lot of unspoken rules. Um, I was pretty much putting my life at risk of being killed when I left this trafficker, because if you leave a trafficker, um, if they find you, they'll beat you up, they'll kill you, they kill girls, you don't just leave your pimp and when you do you're called a renegade. And so, um, and then too, there's these unspoken rules too. like if a girl is out on a strip working and she doesn't have a pimp like. I remember I used to go out and I would work and like, if I seen a certain type of guy that I had this certain look, I'm like, oh, that's a pimp. Do not make eye contact. I'm like, whatever you do, don't make eye contact. Cause if you make eye contact with them, it's called breaking. They tell you to break yourself. And then what breaking yourself is, is if they know that you're an escort and this is a pimp, they will take your money. And if you don't give it to them, they will beat you. And then in some cases, these guys even beat girls and force them to become their hoes. So it is not easy leaving. I was uh, terrified each night that I went out that if this trafficker found me, he was going to kill me. And so I started changing my hair up all the time. I would buy different wigs. I'm like, he's not going to recognize me. But there was one time I like I did see him one time I was walking with the John to his hotel room. And I almost like I could have like like I probably could have peed myself. I was like, oh my God, I hope he doesn't recognize me. Cause I knew that if he would have recognized me in the crowd, he would have, you know, probably beat me. So it's in not front, in front of the John, he would have hit you. Oh yeah. They don't care. Wow. Damn. Uh, looking forward to your future. Uh, you know, what do you, what, what do you, hope to convey uh to people who might be going through this uh how are you healing more yourself um and your future for your daughters what do you what do you think is uh coming well right now i know i'm in a really good place i've made good decisions um i graduated school last year uh i have a degree in business 
I have a business now and I've done so much personal work because I realized I was deeply broken. And in order to live a healthy lifestyle, I had to confront so much like, I mean, to be honest, like I have like PTSD, complex trauma. Um, and I had to really heal those areas in my life in order for me to live successful now. And really what I hope to convey, what I hope to do is empower people, not just girls who may be in human trafficking, but people who may be in abusive relationships as well. Um, I tend to talk a lot about how to spot abuse because in so many, I look back at my life and I was like, man, I just went from one area of abuse to a next and you know and i'm not a victim but i have been victimized like now i feel like i'm a victorious person i've overcome so much but you know i have been a victim and it started in childhood it was i was conditioned for it a lot of times when you're abused in your childhood um you're taught your worth you're taught what to expect from people and you naturally gravitate towards people who will treat you the same because it's what you're used to so i had to confront and say uh-uh this is not what I want. This is abuse. So I speak in a way like, you know, in a way to help people recognize abuse from people because I've just been through so many bad relationships and I've had to learn. And now I really don't put up with stuff. If I get one hint, you know, now I'm, I'm, I'm not confrontational, like, like in a mean way, but I do speak up for myself. If someone's being out of line, I'm like, oh no, you got the wrong person. Cause I will like, I feel like I'll be damned if you treat me how I was treated before I recognize this because I've been treated this way and you're not either you're, you treat me right or I'm not gonna deal with you. Mm -hmm. So I speak up for myself and I teach my girls that, teach them how to have a voice, how to have boundaries. And you know, too, as a parent, you know, I let my kids correct me. I'm not perfect. If I'm being too rough or I said something that hurt their feelings, if they come to me and say, mommy, that was mean, or mommy, you did this, it's an opportunity for me to take a look at myself and see like, you know, am I being too rough? Is this something that's popping up from the uh, way I was raised? And it's an opportunity to correct it and um, break those patterns of how I was raised. Uh, so I do let my kids correct me. So I feel like collectively, my children and I were on a journey of growth and really um, figuring out the best way to parent them so they can be strong people. And I truly believe it's easier to raise a strong child than repair a broken adult because it's taken me years of self-worth. Like it's been five years, a solid five years that I've had to work on myself just to even like get myself to a place where I feel like I'm at a normal, like a person my age, I'm at a normal pace, you know, cause I grew up in survival mode. My brain was wired for survival. So a kid that grew up in a normal, ha happy and healthy home, they're here. They're a normal functioning adult where I've had to do so much work just to get myself on that level. I have one last question for you. Um, unfortunately, you're not the only one that has gone through this or, or will go through this for the rest of time. If you could speak to somebody going through this certain situation, what would you tell them? I would tell them that you're worth so much more than being abused, being someone's punching bag, being someone's um, scapegoat you have such high value. And I would encourage them to never stop dreaming of a better life. If you even have the hint 
of a possibility, something inkling inside of you that's saying life could be better to chase that, to be relentless, to do what you can to create a better life for yourself. Because I don't believe, you know, we're not made to be abused. I mean, it's unfortunate. The world has a lot of bad people in it. No one is, you know, made to be abused in that way. But I would encourage someone, if you feel that you're being abused or you've come from, um, a bad upbringing, there's hope. You can dream big, you can dream again. Really, I, I would wanna encourage people to dream again. Um, don't lose your dreams. As a child, I always had a dream of having a business. And so now to have graduated with the degree in business and have a business, you know, that's me dreaming again. So you can always dream again. It's never too late. If you still have breath in your lungs, it's never too late to start a different future for yourself. Wow, Perry, thank you so much. This you're uh, welcome. No, yeah, it, you're sharing your story has it, it's essential. We need uh, you know uh, people like you, women like you, who have been uh, you know victimized by this horrible thing uh, to spread awareness. Um, and you know we're really honored to have you uh, on today to share your story. Um, yeah. Bob, do you have anything else? No, thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, yeah of course. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, this has been the Story of Podcast on a Thursday night. Um, we do have uh, a little bit of uh, news. We will be taking a break uh, for a little while uh, as we try to recoup some things and Bob gets his work schedule in order. But it's my um, fault, guys. <laughs> uh, we hope uh, you enjoyed our programming. We'll be back in uh, a couple weeks. Um, and uh, as always, we'll be back here on Facebook Live and Instagram. Uh, so thank you for listening to this episode tonight. You can find this episode anywhere you find podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. Uh, and Facebook Live and Instagram Live uh, when we do have our live episodes. Uh, make sure to follow us on Instagram at the Story of Pod. Make sure you follow Perry if you're on Facebook Live. You'll see her handle right there on the screen at Perry Marie underscore. Uh, she's a great follow. Really nice inspirational stuff on there. Um, and yeah, we'll be back soon. We can't give you a firm date yet, but. Uh, it's been a wonderful time. Thank you again, Perry, and good night, everybody.